1: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Erin Yoshi. For the month of March, International Women's Month, I'm doing a podcast takeover to uplift women's voices in the arts. In an effort to create the world we want to see and bring equality to the art world, I've kindly asked Man One and Sourdough to step aside this month and allow for myself, a woman of color, to take the reins. To their loyal fans, don't worry. They will return after a month-long sabbatical, refreshed and ready to go. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment on this episode to support our work. Now let's jump to it. A little about me. I go by Yoshi. I'm a creative strategist who paints murals. I'm a curator and event producer. I've created festivals and built community-based arts projects for about two decades. And I've painted all over the world. I'm a former nonprofit executive, and I've seen the art world from the ins and outs, from the administrative side and as an artist. And I'm going to bring to you some of my favorite women in the creative field to share their knowledge and experience with us. They're brilliant, raw, and powerful and have a lot to share. Also, if you're in Los Angeles for the month of March 2021, I'm unveiling The Land of We, a solo exhibition unlike any others. It's a COVID-safe billboard exhibition, which will be showcased across Los Angeles. To find out more information and to download the map, go to www.erinyoshi.com. In today's episode, we have Fabiana Rodriguez. Fabi is the co-founder and president of the Center for Cultural Power, a national organization igniting change at the intersection of arts, culture, and social justice. She is an award-winning artist, cultural strategist, and social movement leader, who partners with national organizations and progressive advocacy groups to design effective cultural campaigns. In addition, she is an art printmaker behind the Migration is Beautiful art and narrative project. Fabiana embodies the perspective of a first-generation American Latinx artist with Afro-Peruvian roots. She grew up in the working-class Oakland, California during the birth of the Internet and in the midst of the era of anti-immigrant hate and the war on drugs. Her art and praxis address migration, economic inequity, gender justice, and climate change. We also have Anne Martin. Anne owns and operates an environmentally sustainable company specializing in contemporary art and state of the ecologically-friendly prints, Sugar Press. With over 20 years experience in galleries, curating, publishing for artists, her refined aesthetic and knowledge helps individuals and companies assemble a contemporary, sustainable and archival art collection. She has strong ties in the contemporary arts community. She offers a unique partnership for artists and companies for promoting charitable activities. She features high quality, state of the art, sustainable prints. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. So we're very excited today to have the amazing Fabiana Rodriguez. She's the uh, co-founder and president of the Center for Cultural Power. She's also an amazing visual artist. We also are here with Ann Martin, who's the owner of Sugar Press. But Ann is also an event producer, a curator, an all-around powerhouse in the arts here in Los Angeles. So I'm super excited to welcome them to the Not Real Art Podcast. So... Bobby, I'd love to kick it off by just asking you some questions. I feel like you totally break the mold for artists, for entrepreneur. And I wonder, your art has a beautiful social justice undertone and messaging in it. It's actually very clear in your work. And was it always that way or did
2: you used to do art that was different before? Since I was a kid, art for me has been a way to express myself and also to really delve into my imagination. I was growing up in Oakland, California during the 80s and 90s, and I was witnessing firsthand the impacts of the war on drugs. The government was putting crack and cocaine in our communities. Uh, Oakland was one of the most most dangerous places to live in. And uh, that was the kind of conditions that I was witnessing together with gang violence and pollution and just like the intersection of um, inequality and oppression. And so to me, my art has always been a way for me to tell the story, both of what I'm witnessing and how I'm coping with it. And so even as a kid, you know, when I was 11 years old and it was clear that I loved to draw, my mom hired a chola who lived down the street from me to teach me how to draw. And what I learned how to draw was smile now, cry later, um, faces and Cadillacs. And tigers. And so for me, I view art as the way we express ourselves. And I think that because I do art about my community, that often it can be viewed as political art or feminist art. But in reality, art is always an expression of a lived experience. It's just that we've been taught to center the experience of white European male artists. But in reality, art is all expression. And so I I think really. For me, social justice has been such a theme because social justice offered me a way to change my conditions. I lost a lot of friends and peers to drugs, incarceration, teen pregnancy. And so art for me was my way out because it was the one thing that I did instead of cutting school, instead of going to drink or to um, get high Art was my outlet because I was so interested in speaking out against the system and I was growing up in Oakland. I could still feel the culture from the Black Panthers who had been there 20 years before. I could see hip hop in the streets. I could see the graffiti by TDK when they were making murals that said tax dollars kill. Right. And all that influenced me and I also uh, working with the muralist with the Chicana muralist Sochil Guerrero who painted a lot of the murals on Bell, she taught me about how art could be a way for us to honor and celebrate our history and that's when I really learned how to paint like Aztec imagery and Frida Kahlo and Chavez and and really own that I was a part of a long tradition of painters who would use murals to communicate our, our pride and our struggles.
1: Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with that. You know, I mean, I like growing up with my family being on the east side and in East L.A., like I would grow up seeing graffiti and a lot of the kind of Mexican influenced murals or Chicano murals. And so I really like that was art to me. That was like the, the most powerful art. So I didn't really know the distinction between the whole fine art world and the street art world, because that to me was my entry point into art. So I I totally, I, I think a lot of times it is, you're just speaking about your lived experience. And for you, Anne, I know like you grew up
0: in Indiana, right? Right. I grew up in a fairly small town in Southern Indiana. So it was an extremely different experience. But I also uh, started drawing and working on art as a small child, and my two passions were always art and animals and so i when i got ready to go to college i kept bouncing back and forth at first am i gonna study art am i gonna do something with animals i ended up getting a degree in animal science first and then went back to art school but then i ended up making my artwork then was very focused on animal rights issues so and, and then it got that got even more intense because while i was finishing art school I was running an animal shelter, and so I was day-to-day dealing with the abuse and horrible things that happened to animals, and my artwork actually got so dark at one point. At one show I was in, they asked me to hang my piece in the closet. Wow, that's cold. (laughs) But I said yes, because this closet was perfect. It was this closet that was painted black, and we took the door off of it and hung my art in there, and it was actually a perfect setting to have to go into this little dark room and look at something that made you wake up and pay attention.
1: Okay, so it was fitting. So you yeah, felt like it, it was fitting. okay. Okay, yeah. so and when you were in Indiana, you also worked for Christie's,
0: right? That was actually once I had moved to LA. As soon as okay. I moved, oh yeah, I didn't know that. A, yep, I ran. I did run a gallery in Indiana before I left, but that was uh, the university's gallery, and we did rotating shows. Once I first moved here, I worked for a publisher named Edward Weston, and he was also a huge collector. He had, a, at one point, he had the world's largest Picasso ceramic collection. And so I dealt with Christie's and Sotheby's a lot dealing with his collection.
1: Wow. And what did you kind of take from that experience that maybe has
0: influenced what
1: you do today?
0: It did teach me a lot about the right and wrong ways to publish limited edition prints and being sure that you're very consistent with your edition sizes, keeping track of your artist proofs and your publisher's proofs, you know, the right way to document all of those things. You know, there's a little known law that the state of California actually requires you to send a certificate of authenticity with any limited edition art. So, you know. I, I just got a wealth of knowledge about the right ways to do things. And then I sometimes saw the backside of the wrong way other people did things and learned things not to do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I've learned a ton from you. I know that I have made some mistakes early on, and I really appreciate working with you because you've definitely shown me the ropes on that. Favi, I mean, you're a printmaker as well, but you do all different types of printmaking. So can you walk me a little bit through your process of, of your printmaking? My
2: foundational artistic learning came through printmakers. So in the classes that I would take in my neighborhood, I learned how to screen print, how to cut linoleum block. And actually, a lot of my mentors taught me that the poster, really the the ability to reproduce something made it a more democratic medium. In fact, one of the things I remember is that my friend Lincoln Cushing, who's a political poster archivist, would call the art pieces uh, paper tigers or paper soldiers, right? Because works on paper could do so much. They could be distributed in the community. It was in 2001 when I created my first poster, and that was after 9 happened. And I collaborated with Insight, Women of Color Against Violence, to create posters that were pushing back against the militaristic agenda that Bush had at that time. It was the first time when my art got printed in mass and distributed to different cities. And I really loved how one artwork could touch so many people. And that rather than being something that lived in a gallery where uh, very few people would interact with it, and it was kind of uh, an, an elite interaction, that my poster could be in classrooms. It could be in offices. I mean, now my posters are everywhere. They're even I have posters in Kamala Harris's office in D.C., Right. So I love that printmaking taught me to love paper and I continue to work with paper today. And so learning, you know, everything from Mokuhanga, which is the Japanese way of printmaking to screen printing at Self-Help Graphics, where they taught me everything from how to addition to how to number. I just have always loved the ability to create a small collection of works that go back a really long tradition because, you know, the, the printing press is one of our oldest forms of reproducing ideas. So even the idea of a multiple is actually one of the first ways that we as human beings began distributing ideas in mass. So I think just it is grounded in accessibility in being democratic. And so for me, it's it is the way I work. I mostly produce limited edition prints, hand-printed multiples, you know, edition variees, And my mentors taught me to follow a tradition, follow the tradition of everything from numbering to what we call trial proofs to what we call artist proofs. And that has been such a gift because it just gives value to works on paper. It, it's a language, you know, it's a language of how we value these limited editions. And also, you know, it's whether it's a risograph or a woodblock or an etching, these are still handmade works that can be shared with art lovers in a very different way than, say, you know, one large painting or even a large mural.
1: Yeah, I love that idea of how it's so much more democratic because, you know, it's like I'll create a painting and you have one you try and distribute. And luckily now through Sugar Press, I can have multiples. But, you know, I mean, it's just really powerful what you're saying. You like you've gone into it with that intention from the start. And I really love that idea.
0: Another just little note on that subject is a question I get from a lot of artists. will be, well, am I devaluing my work by doing prints or is a print considered good art and I'm speaking digitally cuz this question is coming to Sugar Press or is it okay to do posters I just have a very general answer almost every major museum in the world has a print department for their limited edition prints mm-hmm. and then they also most of them all also have what they call an ephemera department for posters and things like that so no matter what the form is, these are all valuable documents and pieces of work. So there's no need for everyone to you know, worry about it. You know, If you're creating a good piece of art, spread the word. <laughs>
2: yeah. I also think we have to push back against the bias that exists for works that have not been popularized by white men. You know, whether it's, I, I think there's a bias against even work small works done by women, right? But when we consider that for many years, women did not have their own studios, they were working out of their homes. So the size reflects that. And similarly, you know, printmaking and printmakers are often around sharing a message and and making it widely popular and accessible. And so I, I always push back against this idea that prints are devaluing because I think we need to question the ways in which art categories and mediums have a hierarchy that is actually really reflective of white european males and their preference of how to make art and i also believe that as artists who represent marginalized communities we absolutely need our art to be out there it has to be in classrooms i mean you have to have kids interacting with this you want your art in office spaces like why why wouldn't we want that why don't we I I think there is a bias and I encourage people to recognize that times are changing. There is now a deeper appreciation and recognition of the art forms that were once seen as popular pop art, women's art, uh, black art, Latinx art. And that part of what we need to do as artists is disrupt the industry and honestly work with institutions who respect us and are not perpetuating these very elite systems, which are actually very hard to get into. Yeah, absolutely. You know,
1: that really makes me think about there's a quote or a statistic that says works by women artists make up only three to five percent of major permanent collections in the US and Europe. I mean, when you think about three to five percent of a permanent collection, that leaves so little space for people to sell these beautiful originals or this powerful work that speaks to different stories that are diverse of of various communities. You know, it it doesn't leave us space to be able to have our work be accessible into these uh, white box institutions. So I think that it's a really powerful thing to think of uh, printmaking as a way of disrupting the industry. So
0: yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Absolutely. And it is more democratic in being able to reach You know more people because there's obviously a bias to or an issue with economic class, and you know not everyone can afford to buy an original that costs you know several thousand dollars. Why wouldn't you want your work to be able to speak to and live with people that can only afford a fifty dollar, hundred dollar poster?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most important thing. You know, at least I've thought of it a lot with, I want things that are accessible so the people that are around me can purchase them, that the people around me can enjoy them and it can be speaking to my communities, you know, that they are able to buy stuff. So I really love the power of of printmaking for that reason. Um, And now you represent like 100 artists with Sugar Press. Is that right?
0: Yeah, (laughs) we do now. We're just reached the, I think, 102.
1: (laughs) Wow, 102. Okay. So out of your 102, I'm sure that you've, you know, you, you can witness the variation of people who've done this successfully and people who are struggling a little bit more. Are there things that you have like takeaways, the people that are doing it right? What are some of the things that they're doing versus folks that are maybe just kind of getting it ramped up?
0: It really is a lot to do with just building your own brand. Sugar Press has built its own brand. But when we represent 100 plus artists, we when we add someone new, we never know how our audience is going to respond to that person. All artists need to focus on their brand and trying to create a consistent message. Because I feel like not that people can't you know switch up what they're doing. But once you start to create a message and a brand that people recognize, then your people just continue to follow you and you can grow your brand easier. Mm -hmm.
2: I, I love that, Anne, because I mean, one thing as a woman of color who didn't go to art school, I have really experienced a lot of barriers in the art world. And I know it's not just me. I know that you know, the data that we see around what the art world looks like and who they uplift actually creates systemic barriers. And so one way to address those systemic barriers rather than continuously trying to push my way into a space that's going to change at a Snell's pace is to actually be very responsible and take ownership for how I want to communicate and how I want to do business. And I think that it's really important for artists to own their story and to be authentic and to talk about what they care about, what their values are. Unfortunately, the Western male-centric, white male-centric art world sort of has this, this notion that if you're, quote, political, but all art is political. I mean, it's all reflecting a lived experience, but I believe that the more the artist actually has is able to articulate their values, why they make the work they do, that's how you build a real relationship with your followers. And I think creating a brand is really around naming the things you care about and being consistent about it. Because obviously, you know, for me, I care about the environment. I also care very much about animal rights as an environmentalist. I'm a vegan. I'm against... The factory farming system, because it exploits my people, it exploits animals and it exploits my people. It's a disgusting system. And so my work is around celebrating our relationship to nature. The way I became vegan was actually by being inspired by what it means to stop eating, you know, a tortured animal and also speak out against the meat industry, which I mean, if y'all see how many people are getting COVID, it's a disgusting industry. And I talk about racial justice. I talk about gender justice. I'm a very intersectional artist. And my fans have gone along the journey with me. And some of them now even are like, yo, I'm exploring being vegan. And that's actually, I feel like the power of us as artists and in creating your brand is that as artists, people are watching you. We can influence people beyond what we make. We can influence people through our brand. So I just really want to reiterate that Thinking about your brand is not like, oh, you know, some people see it like, oh, I just want to be an artist. I don't want to do this admin work. But it's actually about taking control of your narrative in a world that wants to silence you. And actually, you will not get your narrative out there unless you begin to kind of form your own pathway.
0: Absolutely. I agree with all that so much. Um, I mean, and that's part of what inspired me to start Sugar Press. You know, I had gone from, a gallery in Beverly Hills then to a director of a gallery in Bergamot Station and at Bergamot back this is back when it used to be really big before they tore half of it down i was sitting in one of the directors meetings one day and i was looking around at all the people around me and it was all white people and but then the gallery owners were all men and the gallery directors were almost all women So we're all working for these men and they're the ones who are really making the money. We just had jobs. (laughs) And I was just like, yeah, it's time for me to do my own thing and be able to, you know, do what I care about. So then, and then finding eco-friendly papers, I was just like, this is it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. Your eco-friendly papers and
0: kind of the ethics behind Sugar Press. When I got fed up with, you know, just sitting behind a desk and being the blonde white girl behind the desk. I knew I wanted to do something on my own and I was, you know, bouncing around different ideas. And then I heard about this sugar paper that is made from the byproduct of, you know, the sugar cane, the leftover stalks, turned into paper. I was just like, that's it. Five minutes later I said the words sugar prep. <laughs> and and there it was and but then come to find out there are there are several other eco-friendly papers there's also bamboo papers kozo the japanese really have dominated the industry in making the eco-friendly papers they they do great papers and actually the kozo has become one of my favorite papers just because kozo is the bark of a mulberry tree mulberry trees naturally shed their bark So it encourages them to grow trees and then they just harvest the bark that falls off. So it's, it's an amazing paper.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I love how sustainable
2: that is. That's so wonderful. As an environmentalist, I've been thinking about a culture of waste and toxicity that is actually very embedded in the arts uh, that I've recently really called into question because I fight like hell against the fossil fuel industry And so much of the materials that we're using are oil-based. I faced, even from my peers, a lot of resistance to use water-based because of this idea that it doesn't look the same. And recently, I've been reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she talks about the importance of us, especially those of us who want to be realigned with nature, to really understand the cost of what we're working with. And that when we're working with paper, this was a tree. And if we're going to respect the tree and we talk about respecting nature, we have to have an ecological lens on the things that we're using. And this is another reason, actually, why paper to me is so important, having a paper-based practice, because I can recycle. I can really be intentional. I mean, some of the organic papers that I use, I can compost lately I've been really examining how we do not have a culture of an ecological view as artists, especially, you know, artists as a pe- person of color, environmental devastation is disproportionately affecting my community, communities of color, right? The These trees that are being knocked out for, Paper and supplies are often in indigenous communities. So I think I really encourage artists to examine their materials and to, I love, you know, what you're doing and because it actually really allows for artists to be values aligned in how they produce, especially given that, you know, it's, it is a a reproduction, right? So you, there is going to be volume, but the fact that there's thoughtfulness in what the material is, I mean, that's a whole story. And I think clients really appreciate that.
0: Yeah. And we've just launched launched our zero waste initiative because when you're printing digitally, you know, the paper only comes in certain sizes and sometimes the art doesn't really fit that size. So we'll end up with an extra, you know, six inches that, of paper that's going to be wasted. Well, we've started now doing little mini prints that we can get in there and make sure we don't waste that six inches of paper. <laughs>
1: They're awesome. I, I love that. I, I know. I was so lucky. I got a little run that we ended up um, uh, like giving away as part of like a, a little incentive on, on social media. So it was a really cool way to experience these six inch um, prints. They're really beautiful. Fabi, I wanted to ask you a little bit, because we've talked a little bit about, like, Anne has Sugar Press. You have the Center for Cultural Power. How, you know, tell me a little bit about this organization, how it came about, and what you guys are working on.
2: Yes. So I run an organization that is around training and supporting artists involved in social justice. And some of the key areas we work with are in gender justice, racial justice, climate justice, and uh, immigrant rights. And I think, you know, similar to Anne is that I just I got tired of working in environments that were very male and that had a really kind of domination culture and a culture of unaccountability uh, that early on, since I was young, I mean, I w- I would w- watch my mom, who was an entrepreneur, and I decided to launch my own business in the year 2000. So the Center for Cultural Power is like my fifth, I would say, startup. And I'm never going back to working for someone who is not aligned with me because our labor matters. Like our labor is so important. And when we can build institutions that have a real benefit to people and that are actually grounded in real values, I think that's what's needed. I think the old institutions in service of profit is why our world is being destroyed. Like profit is not it's not about profit. It's because it actually doesn't cost less. It costs more. The cost of how everything from fossil fuels to plastic is actually significant. So I wanted to create a place for artists like myself because I was I felt very alone for many years. I felt that I live in Oakland. I had to go to LA to find a community of artists. The opportunities were so few and far beyond. And I wanted... I wanted community. I wanted a place that could actually say, hey, you care about racial justice. I have some projects for you. I have a fellowship you can be a part of. And also as an artist, I believe artists need to get paid. I think that we live in a culture of artist exploitation. It is so bad, so bad. Because the Western notions of artists have made us believe that we're going to get discovered. And so its very it's not in our culture to organize with each other. We don't have artist unions in, in other countries. We have no entitlements, we have no safety net. And that is a recipe for disaster, especially if you're coming from a marginalized community. So for me, it was about creating an organization that could help artists through their trajectory right? And to give them opportunities, get them paid, increase their visibility, but also increase their confidence and reminding them that there is another way. I think artists get very frustrated. And especially now when we're looking at, you know, at least two thirds of artists unemployment, these institutions, where are they? Where are they now when we need real economic relief? I mean, it's such a shame to me that in the richest country in the world, you have It's so hard for these artists to get relief. And I'm really hoping that this leads to more social impact organizations and businesses. And, you know, in addition to having my nonprofit, I also have my own studio business. And that I could say, I think the the awesome thing about having your own business, because as an artist, all artists should create their own business. I could hire whoever I want to hire, right? My team is all women, mostly women of color badasses right i love i love that i love the power in making decisions about my practice and giving people health insurance giving people retirement like that to me is very powerful and the way you grow that you know i'm very much about encouraging people to build wealth because the only way you're going to be able to affect change is by being able to pay for the things that you want to do and so you need to build wealth and the way you build wealth is by figuring out a way to have, to have a flow of capital so that you don't have to be waiting for the white curator to come discover you and take 50% of your work. Yeah, that, that's a myth. The whole
1: idea that like you're going to be discovered and somebody you're just waiting. Whoever's waiting for that person to discover you, you're going to be waiting for your entire career because you got to make things happen. Nobody's coming and knocking on your door, giving you your dream project. You know, I mean, maybe it happens to a few, but almost I I don't think I've ever met anybody that it's happened to, you know, it's like, you got to get off your butt and make things happen. I I think that that says so much. I think that whole idea of starving artists is just like asking for exploitation or the idea of, you know, exposure bucks is, you know, like you can't pay your rent with that. So I love the idea that, you know, the philosophy behind it, that believe in paying artists, believe in building wealth for us, because all of that, I mean, you know, benefits, packages, all that is so powerful. And it really is a long term thinking. So I think that's really powerful. And and definitely, we need a new WPA, you know, we need some sort of infrastructure, the Works Pro- Progress Administration, we need something that can help us build in this next coming out of COVID time. So I think that that like I'm super proud because I've seen you in for many different organizations. You are definitely a serial entrepreneur. Can you even just list a few of them? Because some of them are
2: still around, right? You know, yeah. like Eastside Arts Alliance. Yeah. How many of them have there been? Yeah. So I co-founded the Eastside Arts Alliance, um, and that was in 2001. And that now we have a building with 60 units of affordable housing and a cultural center. I also co-founded Tumi's mes Design Studio, which doesn't, no longer exists, but that um, was one of the kind of first people of color, studios and web development firms. I co-founded Presente.org, which is now one of the largest online Latino engagement portals. And it's really around, it's about petitions to activate Latinx folks, to take action. And the Center for Cultural Power, I mean, my business, there's a few other small ones, which, uh, you know, just you, you always have failures, which that's okay. I know. Uh, I wonder how
1: many like URLs
2: you've really bought and just to, oh in, my God. in so, the thinking that you're going to build some. <laughs> yeah. I actually like to think because, you know, for a long time, I had an internal battle, which is that I was like, wow, I have to run a business and be an artist can I just be an artist? You know, the, the, I think I was falling into that narrative. And then I realized, you know what? I'm making art by creating another kind of institution. Like that's also art making. It's like, it's like social sculpture, right? It's creating something that's going to be experienced, which is different than something you're going to look at. And so now that I have that mindset, it's actually why I want to get now into film and television is because I realized that really I'm about creating experiences and I'm about being autonomous and having a business is being autonomous because I don't have to then deal with like a white male boss or a boss who is gonna downgrade my sexual harassment complaints which has happened to me when I've had male bosses and so I think it's about like you know art is about manifesting what you want to see in the world and if you're an artist I think it's very normal for you to create a collective or a business and I would encourage folks to see that as an extension of their art as opposed to like something that's disconnected from their art is to really understand that we're storytellers and everything we say and do and create is going to have a lasting impact mm mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. I think of building an organization is kind of like, it's like a vehicle that you drive, like you, you know, your organization, what type of vehicle do you need to get you to where you need to go? And it's sometimes that's going to change. Maybe it's a nonprofit, maybe it's a for profit, and it can evolve, you can have multiple of them. But I definitely agree with you having an infrastructure behind you just gives you so much more ability and flexibility along the way. So, um, you know, but Fabi, I also wanted to ask you, you know, you're a successful artist just as an artist. Like if you did nothing else aside from all the million other things you do, but if you did, if you were just your artist self, tell us through some of the things that you think has helped you become a successful artist because you are just, just
2: art that you do. Yeah. I think that one of my successes has been to be able to be persistent and disciplined with my work and, I, for in many, many occasions, you know, I could have gone to that party. I could have, you know, not spent five hours in the studio, but I really learned early on that to be an artist is a real commitment to your practice, even when you don't want to do it. So I think the consistency, I really believe it to pay off. Because in the monotony of the everyday things that you do, you build mastery. The other thing that has is that I really lead with my imagination and I, I am not bounded by what people think is politically feasible or economically feasible, right? And so in many occasions when, for example, I've been pitching a project, I really think about the big big idea, right? So to me, a big idea is I want to make stories about abortion that are positive, right? I want to create content and art that is about consent. And right now we don't have, we, we can't turn on the TV and see consent. It doesn't, it's just not reflected back. But that doesn't mean that I can't dream big. And when I lead with a big idea, it allows me to be imaginative. And I think that so much about what limits us sometimes is that that the dominant forces will say no, because they don't want to release their power. But when you're able to say, hey, what does it look like for in 10 years to have the major museums change their collections, right, to have gender equity? If we're not rolling like that, I think it's just we, we are allowing for the dominant culture to set the tone of the conversation. And so in many ways, I have challenged people. I have, when I've collaborated with art institutions, I've said, hey, not only can I show my work, I could lead a workshop. You know, I can work with a local organization and we can have an engagement with local immigrant youth. And then I'll be like, and who's on your board, right? What are you doing? Why is your board all white? Have you guys taken anti-racism workshops? If not, why not? Should I target y'all with a petition? Maybe I should. And then before you know it, before you know it, they they have a racial equity program. They get with the program real quick. So I just think that we we can't settle for the crumbs anymore because the the what's in front of us is too significant. You know, we we know from environmentalists that we have about 10 years and maybe now less to dramatically change how we're using energy. And that means we need to tackle capitalism and patriarchy. So I just have always been very bold and trying to find a way. And actually my organizer mentors taught me that. They were like, there is always a way, but you have to be able to to, to be courageous to name it and to find the pathway through. It's led to a lot of Success because you know it means that we we might start in A, but then little by little I propose more and more, and before you know it, you know we're at E, and then we just keep going. That's one thing, and then the second thing, well, that's that's actually not one thing; that's many things. But and then I think just being your own advocate and really celebrating yourself. So I. Celebrate my wins. I, you know, I, when I get a gig, I talk about all the uh, time that I have spent on it, that I'm proud of myself, what this means to me. And in celebrating myself, I create a culture for other people to also celebrate themselves. And I think that, as, especially as uh, cisgender women, we are taught from the moment we're young to be very small and not take up space. And the problem is that in a culture that Constantly tries to invisibilize you or make you just about, you know, how cute you are or how you look. You got to actually be confronted. You got to be offsetting that by celebrating yourself, talking about what you do. So I've become more and more vocal about my values, but also how I'm changing, how I'm transforming. That also means speaking out about my abortions. It means sharing my story of when I was in an abusive relationship it means sharing my journey when my father died my veganism journey right i just have learned to that storytelling is so so important and that when you tell a story you're also allowing for folks to have a kind of a a close intimate relationship with you because the power of stories like we know it is the power of art Remember, we're human beings. We've been telling stories since the beginning of time. We do it through our images on the walls. We do it through all that. It's how we relate as humans. And so I very much, whether it's, you know, posting on my Instagram or writing the description for my art, I always tell a story. And that leads to opportunities because before you know it, you know, people are like, I saw this, I read this, I heard you speak here. And, and that has just opened a lot of doors for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when
1: I follow your brand or I look at how you, you know, like you're, you're a personality in itself aside, like you as your artist self and your brand or personality. And I just feel like it's so powerful because you're willing to be so vulnerable and open that I think it allows other people to Feel brave enough to do that as well, you know. Like through your liberation, you liberate others, and I think that that's really amazing. Um, And and that's why I love celebrating, you know, your social media because I feel like it's a way that I not only get to keep up with you, but also that I get to follow along in your journey. Um, Yes, and and you know, I want to ask you: you work with a huge variety of artists, so some of them that have strong brands, and some of them that don't. How do you end up sharing so many different stories? and the ones that are the very successful with their brand what do you think that they're doing
0: versus folks that maybe aren't i think it is just has a lot to do with believing in yourself i think that even just the word branding intimidates some artists and so then i have to reiterate okay don't take i take back the word branding don't think of it as a brand but yes, it's just believing in yourself and celebrating the work that you're doing because that's all that branding is, is is creating who you are and your identity and your artwork. It's, you know, you don't have to think of, of it like you're trying to create Pepsi and make sure the whole world knows about you right now. It doesn't have to be exactly like that. But yeah, for the ones who have been more successful, I think it is just the fact you know, it's probably a lot to do with self confidence. And a lot of times for women that doesn't come to us as naturally. So, you know, we need to remind ourselves that we we have it and we we, we can share it.
1: Right. And and, I mean, I think that's super powerful, because we are taught, especially, you know, I feel like in Asian culture, too, like we're We're taught to be docile. We're taught to play small, and so I had to learn along the way how to stand up for myself, how to advocate for myself, and and even it's still a challenge for me. I consider myself pretty outspoken, but it is still a challenge for me to do because I wasn't culturally brought up that way. And so, yeah, I totally that that really is um, resonates with me. And I would ask you to, for artists that want to work with somebody like you, what are things that you look for? You know, and people who want to start printing with you?
0: So it, it varies a lot. At bottom line, it comes down to how much I love the work, honestly, but there's so many factors, you know, obviously, everyone wants to sell some of their art and make some money. So we we want to try to sell and make money for all the artists we work with. But we I definitely take risks. You know, I've taken artists on, you know, just to use Instagram as a baseline, you know, I've taken on artists that had 200 followers, and managed to still sell their work just because the the piece spoke to our collectors. So there is unfortunately, no one formula that I can give to people. But we're just open to anything that we like at Sugar Press. And also, you know, anything that artists that also believe in our agenda of the environment so, and creating a culture of artists that are, you know, as you know, Sugar Press, we bounce things back and forth between artists and outsource things when we need help. You know, we bring in, you know, so-and-so is good at writing PR. I'll call them up. And, you know, we, all of us work together and reach out to each other and have, you know, somewhat made sugar press into a collective in a certain situations Mm -hmm.
1: and like folks that you feel like that you are working with you know obviously like we're saying there's there's kind of a range but do you have any tips for people like that are trying to sell work on their own or even people that are even on your roster they're trying to sell are there things that you would say would be tips to help people be more successful at it
0: Always making sure any images that you share that you're sharing high quality images that's that is obviously the one key and I see lots of artists who aren't able to take a good photo of their art and that's got to be the one just killer I mean if you got it you got to show people a good picture you got a good painting. We need a good picture of it. I'm totally guilty of that. I know you said sent <laughs> back some of my images. You're like, stop your phone, okay? Get a camera and shoot it in good light. Well, actually, if you have one of the new iPhones now, you're, all, you're in good shape because those cameras are great. <laughs> I was like, oh gosh, you were
2: totally speaking to me on that. <laughs> I think one of the most important lessons I learned was to document my art like real good photography, because here's the thing. I mean, I've now been making art for 20 years and there have been many occasions where I sold out work and I did not, had not adequately photographed it or I just hadn't photographed it for high res reproduction. And so early on um, in my career, I started hiring photographers to shoot it because- Me learning a new skill was a lot. And I just realized that if I could, you know, every two weeks, you know, I make I make a lot of art. I just take a bundle and it is such a great process because not only then do I have a record, a high res record of something I made. Remember that when you are gone from this planet, your art will still be here. And you need those high-res photos. You need a record of what you have made because it is the documentation of your life's work. And so now, you know, I have a record. I'm able to put it on my website. I'm able to put it on IG. I'm quickly able to put it on my online store. And I'm able to reproduce it, right? It's just so, so important. And I would say if there's anything you may want to invest in, it's in good photography, high-res, photography of your work as soon as you finalize it. Yeah. yeah,
1: totally. You know, I'm lucky enough that I took one of Fabi's workshops and she shared with us her archive, which I got to say, I've never seen one like it. It's amazing, you know, because not only do you know where like every piece is at any point in time that you have out, who bought it, where it's sold, you know, is it documented? Is it not the status of the piece? Like, it blew my mind and it actually helped me create my archive. So I'm super thankful to you because I feel like your structure is something that ne- like, I feel like, you know, that is one of the powerful art forms that you have is like the, the, all the sort of backgrounds, administrative things that you do that like really add to, I feel like your success, which is so admirable for me, um, you know, and, and I guess in that too, Fabi, you're super successful at selling your work. You know, so you have things like an archive. Are there other things that you do that you feel like really help you? Because I've actually gotten to see some of the steps that you do with like your social media and stuff like that. Do you think
2: you could share some of that? I think that it's very important to have systems, right? To, to be in a regular practice of all the different steps that your art work goes through. So, as a printmaker. I go through a curation phase of my prints where I sign them, I edition them, I send them to get photographed, I write a description about them, I title them, um, and I input them into my spreadsheet. Uh, And that spreadsheet includes everything from size to who helped me print it, to the medium, to the paper, so that I have a very uh, robust record keeping. The other thing is that I think systems also means... For your social media, so because I spent the time writing a little description for my art, I can now use that easily in social media. I could say, "Hey, check out this new body of work." You know, pop in the description. I did. I have my JPEGs ready to go because I got it photographed. And so I also uh, spend a lot of time in thinking about how do I want to deliver my content to my audience. What do I want to say? You know, right now I just released a whole series about. People affected by COVID, um, and I myself, my art is a way for me to process the the death and how like it's just awful. And so I always try to stay engaged in the news and and just so that the stuff I'm talking about is relevant because people not only you know want to look at art, but if your art is connected to what's happening in the times. I mean, this is what Nina Simone said: we are we we help people process and understand. Uh, What's happening? So, systems around posting, I look at my insights, I look at what kinds of posts get more interactions than others for my online store. You know, I keep good inventory. I have a good sense of how my pricing needs to change. Uh, I'm constantly, you know, thinking about okay, I've had these prints kind of sitting here for a long time, they haven't sold. What might I do differently? You know, do I talk about them differently? Maybe. It's unbelievable, but I have no idea that if I'm holding a print and I show my face on Instagram, that makes it sell way faster than if I'm, if I just show the print itself. It's fascinating. I'm sure you have figured that out. And as you just hold it. The moment you have any kind of human element on it, it is. it's It's like it, it, it's, it's a game changer.
0: And descriptions as well. We start tracking descriptions. And while I believe most people on Instagram don't read, the people who that piece catches their attention, then they do read. And the description can help lead to a purchase.
2: Yeah. So there's um, I have strategies for um, communications. Right. Which includes also my email. Right. How am I communicating to my email list, to my Instagram, to my Facebook? Those Facebook has a very different audience than IG. I have processes around how the the prints move in my studio, even where I put them, because I got to tell you, sometimes I've sold stuff and I'm like, <laughs> where the heck is that at? So I realize that I need to have organization in the physical as much as online. And then third, I would say on my production, I have a very, like, I keep a production calendar um, with my team. We always have critiques once a week and they tell me, give me feedback. And, you know, production is like a whole, it's like, okay, what am I feeling today? So I've been really feeling, you know, there's, there's a whole, like, vegan pop-ups are all over Oakland right now. And I've been really about vegan tacos. Right. And so I'm like, Yo, I'm really about food right now because so many people are learning to cook in the pandemic. So I'm like I want to make art around my favorite foods, right? Tamales, ramen, and so I'm that's what I'm working on now. And so I keep like I keep like a bank of ideas and then I just experiment, but all that requires documentation, right? It requires conversation because I don't produce on my own. I have a team that helps me. So then we know, okay, you know we need to order the paper. we need to allocate a few days to carve this lino. We need to do a test print. We need to approve the colors so that that's just I, I encourage people to even do something as simple as a spreadsheet around you know design, feedback, production, you know final curation and documentation, and then launch. It's like when you develop a rhythm like that, you can juggle you know for me, I'm juggling at any given week like. 10 or 20 new works, but because they're prints, they're different designs, of course, but it's still like, they they have like a rhythm, you know? Like last year, a lot of my prints were about the pandemic, the economic crisis. And now I have a lot of prints about winning because we won the election. Obviously, I might have to do some work around being an anti-racist, right? Racial justice, because we got to remind Americans that we cannot allow for white supremacy to rise in the way it is. So I just think that when you have a way of organizing yourself, it's like, it's like a dance, right? It's like your exercise routine that then you don't, even if you get to the studio and you're not inspired, you have a set of rhythms that you go through.
0: So all our social media handles are all the same. It's at sugarpressart and the website is sugarpressart.com. And... We have, I can't announce artists yet, but we are bringing back the second edition of Love Los Angeles Style for February. Unfortunately, we won't have a gallery show this year, but we're coming up with a stellar print collection that I think people are going to be really excited about.
2: Yes. So um, I am currently finalizing a big art project, public art project that I'm doing with the San Francisco Animal Shelter. And it is huge, oversized animals, iguanas, cats, rabbits, mice, and some of them are on wood, some of them are on glass. And so I'll be working through that for the next few months. And I'm also working on art that is about grieving. I think that we are going to be experiencing some collective trauma. The number of deaths and how we're not able to be with our loved ones is just devastating. I really want to create ways for people to hold that pain and maybe to create through it. So that's something else I've been focused on. And soon I'll be releasing a downloadable coloring book uh, that's about visualizing the future that we want, right? Because I think it's not enough to say we don't want these white supremacists running our country. We need to also talk about what we do want. We want a future in which all children are safe and they can thrive, right? And especially when you're working with kids, you know, kids don't necessarily understand the the complexity of the political system, and they actually don't have the ability to vote. So how can we ground them in a vision for the future, which they are going to be able to create? And so I've been kind of geeking out on the coloring book thing. I think that right now, as people are doing remote schooling, they need more tools So I would encourage a lot of artists, actually, that this is the time to create things for parents, families, teachers. Just get it out there, because I I think there's a tremendous need for art-based activities uh, that that help us hold the complexity of the times. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. That's so powerful. I'm working on a piece about grieving right now, too, and I, I... You know, I totally agree. It's really the time. We need a way to process through what everybody's feeling right now and a way to collectively heal. So I think those are beautiful examples. I'm always so blown away with both you guys and everything that you do. I love both of you. I'm so thankful that you came on today. Thank you so much for letting me pick your brains. I had more questions, but I will always call you guys and ask you and pick your brains at another date. So thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you for thank being you. here on the Not thank Real Our podcast. You. I love you guys and talk to you again soon. Yes, yes. thank love. you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: Hey there! Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at Not Real If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 Artist Grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough out.